I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem, and welcome back to the Corin Podcast. As we come to the end of 5780 Tafshin it's been a challenging year for all. And as we draw nearer to the new year, 5781, we are honoured to be joined by Rabbi Lord Sachs, who will be sharing his thoughts on the past year and hopes for the year to come. Rabbi Sachs, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. At the time of recording, we're less than a week away from Rosh Hashanah. And given the various challenges the world is facing in 2020, what are you reflecting on as we're approaching Rosh Hashanah? I'm reflecting on the fact that I'm going to be davening with Kavana that like I've never had before. I think what we want to say, Hashem, is thank you very much, but enough already. <laughs> so please accept our, our penitence and our prayer and our tzedakah. That's really, you know, that's really what I'm feeling. But um, I wonder if I could share with you an idea that I think is not unimportant about Rosh Hashanah and about what Judaism is actually about. And the way I used to do this is I used to go around sometimes talking. I would would pick up a, a piece of white paper with a black dot on it. And I would ask the audience, what do they see? And everyone replied, a black dot. And I held up the piece of paper and I said, can you see the black dot takes up less than 1% of the total area? But that's the only thing you noticed. You didn't notice the 99% that was white paper. And that's what human perception is like. We notice the things that are odd, discrepant, discordant. But we take for granted the things that are always there. And one of the mitzvahs that Judaism does, and does it beautifully, and we do this every single morning when we say is that it teaches us not to take things for granted. Waking up in the morning having ground to stand on, having a body, having eyes that can see, having legs that can walk. All of these things are in Birkot HaShacha. And I call that foregrounding the background, taking what we normally take for granted and becoming very, very conscious of it. Now, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are essentially about life. For a year, for a whole year, we've lived and we haven't reflected on the miracle that we're alive. But on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say, you know, Zachreinu Lachaim, Melachofetz Bechaim, Vakosvenu Besevachaim, Amanachalakim Chaim. It's about becoming self consciously aware of life as the gift of God, life as a miracle. And I think this year we're going to feel it. I hope we're going to feel it as never before. We have been 
in a state of danger of sakanat nefashot, not only us, but the whole world, for the better part of a year. And here we are, still alive, still asking Hashem to write us for another year in the Book of Life. And somehow or other, the coronavirus should have helped us foreground the background, not take life for granted, but see it instead as the gift of God, indeed, the most intimate gift of God, because every breath we take is a kind of thank you to God. But I think we'll be more conscious of this this year than any other year I can think of. Um, so just looking at Teshuvah quickly, Teshuvah is uh, an inherently communal process, which is something that might be uh, very different this year. Um, but even in our silent prayers of repentance, we're, they're still said in the plural. Um, so why, why is that important? And how can it help us, especially this year, uh, when so many of us are feeling uh, either literally or just emotionally, spiritually isolated? Well, I think Hashem is reminding us that we shouldn't be isolated. Again, we've taken relationships for granted. And we have become isolated for six months and we've understood, again, more than any other time that I can think of in our life, that we shouldn't be taking this for granted. The Torah doesn't take it for granted. Chapter one of Bereshit, says the word good seven times. Chapter two of Reshit, we read for the first time the words lotov, not good. Lotov heyota adam lovado. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good to be in a state of isolation. Judaism, um, did you ever come across a book by Paul Johnson called A History of the Jews? Have you come across this? Probably not. Um, this was a book written about 30 years ago. One of the finest histories of the Jews I've, I've ever read. And the interesting thing is, he's not Jewish. He's Catholic. And I was thinking to myself, he has written one of the best books about Judaism ever. And he's not Jewish. Let's find out what he discovered in this journey. So Elena and I invited him for dinner. And we said, Paul, you know, you must have spent years doing this book, and he had. What most impressed you about Judaism? And he said, well, I'll tell you. There have been in the history of civilization many individualistic cultures. Uh, second century Rome, Italian Renaissance, the contemporary West. He said, throughout history, there have been many collectivist cultures, Soviet Union, communist China. He said, I only know one civilization that has managed the balance between the two, both individual responsibility and collective responsibility, and that's Jews and Judaism. What he was saying in so many words was what Hillel said, Imein ani li, me li, if I'm not for myself, who will be? And kishani, me me'oni. But if I'm only for myself, what am I? 
So Judaism manages year after year for centuries, a balancing act that almost every other civilization has found impossible. Individual responsibility, collective responsibility. And you can see this, uh, as you said, in so many ways, especially on, Rosh, on Yom Kippur and Slichot, um, which is Oshamnu Bogadnu Gozalnu. We sinned. Al Shechatanu, the sin we committed. Now, we're not saying, Rabbanu Shalalam, please ignore me because the guy next to me has sinned much more than I have. I mean, that's not really what we're saying. We're saying, please, I accept individual responsibility, but please judge us together. And that, of course, happens every time we pray for the healing of someone who's ill. We pray for healing. We do it every time we comfort mourners. We always include other people in our own requests to God. And that is part of this miraculous balance. Because without room for individuality, we're simply uniform. And that's not how God does things. As the Mishnah in Sanhedrin says, he makes us all in our image, but he makes us all different. So we have to have room for individuality. But if we are only there for ourselves, especially when praying, then what are we? We're just seeking our own self-interest. Now, you know, that, that is not a prayerful attitude. So I think the way we construct our prayers, especially on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, in the plural, it's that way of that keeping the balance between what I seek for myself and my family, and yet at the same time, uh, what I pray for on behalf of others. You write in your new book, Morality, about the phenomenon of public shaming on social media as a step backward um, and harmful to society at large. Do you think uh, it represents a social shift away from Teshuvah, uh, removing one's opportunity to repent and redeem themselves from previous mistakes? And what lessons does Judaism teach us to counter this phenomenon? You're absolutely right. It is opposed totally and absolutely to the idea of tshuva. And that makes it a very, very backward step in contemporary society. It was the um, American anthropologist Ruth Benedict who... Um, in the, actually, during the Second World War, as the United States was prepared to fight against Japan, um, who wrote a book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which explained the difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture. Judaism is a guilt culture, the world's first guilt culture. And the essence of a guilt culture is that we make a distinction between the sinner and the sin. The sin is wrong, but the sinner is redeemable. And that creates the space within which tshuva appears. It's the first, first civilization to do this, and of course was later followed, to some extent, by Christianity. A guilt culture is not like that at all. A guilt culture does not make any distinction between the sinner and the sin. You do something wrong, you are stained indelibly. 
what do you do under those circumstances? The Japanese, who have a shame culture, had a shame culture, created something called harakiri. You know, you just quietly went off and committed suicide because there was no hope for you. It doesn't matter how many times you apologize, there's no hope for you. And today's cancel culture is a shame culture. So it doesn't matter how many times people who are being canceled or shamed apologize. Nobody's interested in the apology because they're working on the basis of shame, not guilt. And shame makes no space for tshuva at all. They, their aim is to kill you stone dead, at least a social death. Um, and that's what's so regressive about it because tshuva is one of the very greatest ideas Judaism ever gave to the world. And as Hannah Arendt put it quite rightly, the existence of, of, of forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness, is the one thing that prevents us from being imprisoned by the past. Because without these things, we would never ever escape uh, from the shame. So, um, trouble is, of course, not too many people have noticed this. They think, great, that's wonderful, you see. Social media have democratized criticism, you know. But actually, social media have taken us back into the dark ages in this one respect. And so over the, the past few months, families, communities, friends, colleagues have been separated from each other in ways that no one ever expected. Do you think there's a way to turn this separation into a positive for the coming year? Well, of course there is. <laughs> Absolutely, that's what Judaism does. And the person who taught us this uh, was the late Viktor Frankl. When Viktor Frankl was taken to Auschwitz, and they took everything away from him, including his family, including his parents, including his wife. And there was only one thing he had left, which is a manuscript of a book that he was writing on psychotherapy. And he says, when the Nazis took that from me, my life was effectively over. And Viktor Frankl said to himself, well, I can't allow this to happen. I have to survive and I have to help other people to survive. And he hit on something of the most fundamental kind. We call it today reframing. What he did was, he said, I am not going to see myself as a prisoner. I refuse that. My enemies want to impose that on me, but I refuse to grant them that victory. I am going to see myself as a psychotherapist engaged in a monumental experiment. And that's how he saw the rest of his years at Auschwitz. He was a psychotherapist taking part in an experiment relating to other prisoners, observing everything that was happening. And in his mind, he became a free man. He was able to redefine the situation. So when all this began uh, back in March of this year, I said to myself, 
What would Viktor Frankl do? And the answer came back, obviously, he would reframe the situation. So how would he reframe the situation? And I said, what he would do is, I have just been given a sabbatical. I am free for the next six months to do whatever I want to do. Of course, I have to stay pretty much on my own, but I've just been given this incredible gift of a six-month sabbatical. So I do, I do recommend anyone who is finding this really impossible, and it is pretty impossible, to do something like that. Just reframe the whole thing and just see it in a different way. Uh, on, you mentioned a few of the different tefillot uh, that we say over Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur before. And on a Rosh Hashanah that will undoubtedly be not be not like any other in living memory, do you think that some of the more well-known tefillot or customs might contain deeper resonance this year? Or maybe do you think we might discover new meaning in previously lesser known or lesser emphasized customs or tefillot? Well, one prayer I'm going to say with particular kavanah this year, and, and, and it's one of the most beautiful prayers, uh, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and I'm, I'm referring to the close of Netanet uh, Tokev. You know, Adam Yisodo Me Afar, Le Afar. We are born in dust, we end in dust, and we are Mashul Kacheres Anishba. We are like a broken fragment of pottery like dried up grass, like a faded flower, like a fleeting shadow, like a passing cloud, like a dream that slips away. The prayer is telling us, be aware. You know, you've just done your tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah, and hopefully you've now been written for life. But be aware how fragile and vulnerable life actually is. And that doesn't mean to say that that's unbearable. What it does mean is that it is perishable art. It has a special beauty, like a fleeting dream, like a passing cloud. Just be aware of that. And once you become aware of it, Limnot Yamenu Ken teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let every single day count. During the lockdown, and in some ways we thought this was going to be heartbreaking, um, we had the bumitva of one of our grandsons. And we had to do it by Zoom. There was absolutely no option. We did it Thursday evening through Zoom and did it, you know, you couldn't really make, you couldn't make Birkota Torah. At that point, we couldn't assemble a minion anywhere. And yet, at the end of the day, it made that whole um, celebration unusually intimate between our grandson and Elena and myself. It was just, it was very, very close. So, um, you know, I, I kind of understood that, 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 that certain things are possible once you accept their fragility. So that's number one. Of course, number two, what comes to mind Two years ago, 
never done this before. We were always in England for, for Rosh Hashanah. Um, but two years ago, we were in the Fifth Avenue Synagogue in New York. You go for Tashlich there. <laughs> it's like going to see Manchester United playing Arsenal, you know, the thousands of people out there in the Central Park. It's just amazing. Um, and it, we were throwing away so many sins that the fish just weren't interested anymore. <laughs> you know, Chalti Visavati, you know. Um, and there were a number of Hasidim and Chabadnikim, etc. We were just standing in the middle of the park, regardless of the fact that we were there to do Tashlich. And they were doing Tekiah Shofar. And I thought, this is weird, you know, what on earth is this all about? Now, two years later, <laughs> I've understood that that's probably the best way of doing Tekiya Shofar out there, out in the open. Um, and uh, so very, very moved. And I, I think each one of us will have our own take on what makes this Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur different from all others. But I do think the memory of it will stay with us forever. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, how your grandson's bar mitzvah on Zoom sort of made this uh, uniquely intimate experience for you, um, or how you know <laughs> the way that you had experienced Tashlich a couple of years ago might be the, the future of it. Um, so looking back uh, at the events of the past year, uh, how do you think Judaism, uh, the Jewish people, Jewish practice, um, will be impacted by? the coronavirus and the COVID pandemic uh, in, in, in the longer term? I actually don't know. I don't know that anyone knows how things are going to change. Whether we'll simply go back to the way we were, whether certain things will now happen that never happened before. I do think this. Number one, um, the electronic media have connected us in ways that had they not been there, we would have found almost unbearable. So although I'm critical of the social media, this has been their finest hour. And um, it, it may well be that as an adjunct, both to community life and the life of learning, this will become a permanent part of Judaism for the future. Be a way in which rabbis and and, 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 and others are able to stay in touch with people who are simply too old or ill to come to shul on Shabbos, even when all of this is over. Maybe we found a new way of reaching out to them. I think there's been so much global Jewish learning uh, that this too is going to um, be a permanent feature. We always had some sense of being a global people. We've had that all the way for 2000 years. But I think, you know, that sense that we had of learning together with people from America, from Jerusalem, from everywhere, uh, that's probably going to be absolutely uh, a new feature, a new dimension of Judaism. Slowly, people will come back to shul. Um, and it may need a certain outreach effort on our part to bring them back as and when we can. But I will um, just tell you a story that had a huge impact on me. When I was about to become chief rabbi all those years ago, 
my uh, my guys said I've got to go and have a medical so I went to see a doctor and he put me on a treadmill and I asked the doctor what are you testing how long I can go or how fast I can go he said neither what I'm testing is when you get off the machine how long does it take for your pulse to return to normal and that is when I realized that health is measured in recovery times the Jewish people is, has one of the finest recovery times of any people on earth we've been through difficult difficult times since the days of our ancestors we survived it all we even grew stronger through much of it and we know what it is to recover so i think this is going to be the single most important thing how soon do we recover as a community and as a people uh, because that will show our strength and um, so the very recent release of, of two uh, new books, uh, both Judaism's Life-Changing Ideas and uh, Morality, um, both of which are very much of their time. They, they both contain messages that are incredibly necessary and relevant um, for, not for today. You know, we find ourselves in unprecedented times. Um, how much... Uh, how much of, of your thought process was you know a reaction to the times we we are finding ourselves in now uh, and how much were both books uh talking about like the eternal messages of judaism in society and also judaism's interplay with the torah being a force for guiding our lives you never know what's going to turn out to be timely <laughs> you really don't many years ago I was addressing a chatan v'kala under the chuppah. And I said to them as follows, you are about to begin together a journey to the one undiscovered country left on earth, namely the future. Because whatever else we know about the universe, there is one thing we don't know and will never know, namely what tomorrow will bring. And um, that was my speech under the Chopa. Several years later, the mother of the groom said to me, Rabbi Sachs, do you remember that uh, wedding you did? I said, of course, yes. She said, do you remember what you said under the Chopa? I said, yes, I remember. She said, do you remember what day it was? And I said, no, what day was it? And she said, the day before 9-11. So I had no idea that that term was going to turn out to be a little more timely than I would have wished. I finished the book just before the pandemic. I had no idea that it would suddenly become more relevant. 
Um, but, you know, it's, it's actually very helpful that it has. Likewise, life-changing ideas. It's a book I really, really enjoyed writing. And we asked that lovely lady, Barry Weiss, to write the foreword. Could any of us know that she had become a national figure not long before the book appeared because of a very, very um, a tense um, separation from the New York Times, which became a really, really front page story throughout America and he, indeed even through Britain. So you really never know. Um, but sometimes you, you say, I'm so glad I was able to have said what I said because actually it helps us move forward from where we are. One final question we want to ask. We've looked back over the past year um, quite a lot. Uh, looking ahead at the coming year, um, how can we find happiness in the year ahead, given that we already know it will almost certainly bring further challenges? Well, you know, throughout this whole pandemic, one, one, uh, one prayer, one passage has stayed with me every single day, namely Psalm 30, David, which is all about passing through a period of great danger. You know, you know, I was I, I I was secure, and I said I'll never be moved. But he started up anacha. You hid your face. I was, I was really um, I panicked really. And somehow or other, this whole experience leads David Amalach to this extraordinary thing of saying, you know, pitachta saki v'tazreni simcha. You removed my sackcloth and robed me in joy. Or, um, you know, you turn my uh, sadness into dance. Somehow David HaMelech knew how to transmute negative energies into positive ones. David HaMelech was a musician. And musicians know how to make beauty out of pain. And that is the kind of uh, spiritual challenge of the year ahead. We've been through tough times. Okay. Those tough times have been tough, but my goodness, not as tough as they might have been. Around 900,000 people have died. I mean, that's serious throughout the world. But the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, between 20 and 50 million people died. Even the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic took between 12 and 15 million lives. So we've been through a really, really bad time but an importantly positive one. Virtually every government on earth has prioritized pikuach nefesh, has said life is more important than making the economy work. And I, I just, I'm, you know, I'm really moved by that. 
Secondly, we have Israel. You know, if I were going to search for a good test or a good vaccine or a good tracing mechanism, I think I'd choose Israel above Britain and America, to be perfectly honest with you, because Israel is so enterprising in these things. We are one of the world's oldest people, yet we're hungry for the future, which I think is incredible. So I would say take all that pain and find within it moments of joy. Elaine and I, this summer, at the height of the pandemic and the lockdown, celebrated our golden wedding, our 50th wedding anniversary. And we looked at each other, you know, and we said, this is it, you know, there's only us, there's only you and me. And then we said, but you know, when we first met, there were only us, <laughs> there were you and me. So let's go out into the garden with a no lovely bottle of Israeli champagne and let us toast one another and let us remember how things were 50 years ago when we had not the slightest idea where life would be taking us. And let's count our blessings, our wonderful children and grandchildren and everything else. And uh, let us, Kosi Yeshua's Esa, lift a glass of wine to say thank you to Agarish Baruch for being with us all the way. So that is what I recommend people. You cannot be joyous the whole time, but find little islands of joy over the next year. We can celebrate something. And it doesn't matter if it's only you or the two of you. It doesn't matter because joy remains joy. It doesn't grow the more people there are and the bigger the seating plan that you have to organize. So that is how I would suggest we take the year ahead. Find moments to take the pain and turn it into beauty and to joy. Rabbi Sachs, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Corin podcast. And of course, from all of us at Corin, wishing you and uh, your whole family a Shana Tova and a, a year ahead of only good health and happiness. Thank you so much. My blessings and thanks to all of you at Corin for the incredible things you do, your professionalism, your expertise, and the way you are transforming the world of Jewish publishing. Thank you and bless you. And may everyone who's joining us for this podcast be blessed by Kodesh Baruch Hu with the Ketiva V'chatima Tova, a year of all good things. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi. Well, that's it from this week's episode of the Quran Podcast. Rabbi Sachs has two new books available, Judaism's Life-Changing Ideas, which is available from QuranPub.com, as well as Morality, which is available worldwide, and In Israel from QuranPub.co.il. Alex, if people want to get in touch with us, how can they do that? We are on all social media platforms at Karen Publishers. Uh, you can also email us, podcast at karenpub.com. And if you go to karenpub.com or karenpub.co.il, you can get 10% off your order using the promo code podcast at checkout. Until next time, this has been the Karen Podcast. Shana Tova.